We are continuing our study tonight. Tonight we'll be looking at verses 7 through 13, though for context's sake we'll read verses 1 through 13. When you find something extremely good, you want others to experience it too. Some of you had that experience over Thanksgiving with, with a... With a fork in your hand, you pointed at somebody and said, have you tried this pie? You've got to try the pie. It was so good. It had to be shared. The point is good news, good things, but also good news, is its own motivation to share good news. One of the chief reasons we don't share the gospel with others is because we don't find it satisfying ourselves. In Ephesians 3, Paul tells us how he discovered the purpose of his life. He's been given a commission by God to preach to the world about the plan of God that God is unfolding. And he starts then to talk about the topic of evangelism. He's really talking about his own ministry, but by extension he's speaking to all of us about the subject of evangelism. And some of us, I realize, already have sort of a mild sense of dread as I mention the word evangelism. (laughs) Religious people can hear that word and have a sense, well, that the preacher is obviously going to pile on a guilt trip tonight. Have you told anyone yet? Lately? How many? No, that is not what we're going to do. But some of you have a negative association with the word because of guilt. Others have been the target of someone or some people in evangelism and you had a terrible experience on the receiving end you felt like you were somebody's project there's something wrong friends when those are our two chief reactions to the idea of telling others about the unfolding of God's mystery the bible on the one hand never attempts to motivate you by guilt And that is not the point of the sermon tonight. And to those who say, oh, well, the the preacher wants me to get on a soapbox and get in somebody's face. and No, that that is not what we want you to do. And, And if that was your experience, how horrible. If you had somebody to try to hard sell you on the gospel in an offensive way, you may very well have a difficult time hearing the message Because of the messenger. And I simply want to say that's very understandable. But can you entertain the possibility that the message behind the messenger might have gotten lost and is worth taking a look at and might even be so good that it could help you forgive the person who handled it so poorly when they tried to speak to you. And so we want to consider evangelism tonight from Ephesians 3. 7 through 13, picking up the reading back at verse 1. Let me invite you to hear God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is 
that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, I pray that you would bless your word to us tonight. That you would help us to know you by it. That you would teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness. That we might be thoroughly equipped to serve you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ephesians 3, we need to look at four big things about Paul's ministry of bringing the gospel to others. Four things about evangelism. The perspective we need to have. The content. The expectation we ought to have. And the invitation. And in each of those four, there's a vertical and a horizontal dimension. He speaks of things between us and God and angels. And he speaks of things between us as people on earth. There's a vertical and a horizontal. So under each of the four categories, there's those two extra things. And if that now sounds like a four-point sermon went to an eight-point sermon, you would be correct. I want you to think about the first thing. Verses 7 and 8, that's where we're picking up the text. The perspective we need to have in evangelism. What's his perspective? I know who I am. And I know what God has done for me. That's the perspective we need to have. He, he knows the grace of God. Of this gospel, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. You know that Paul was, was sort of the preeminent New Testament example of opposition to the gospel. He was the persecutor of the church. He chased Christians down. And now God took somebody who hated Gentiles most into somebody who loved Gentiles and wanted them to know the good news of the gospel. It's an amazing thing. And Paul knew that it happened not by accident, not by his own smarts, wisdom, spirituality. It had happened by God's grace. God, Paul knows that what he's doing now isn't something in order done to gain God's favor. He, he knows that 
the work will get done without him because God will get his work done one way or another. He knows what a privilege, however, it is that he gets to participate in that work that God is doing with people. It's It's a reminder to us here at the very beginning that we're not doing a noble thing for God, even in sharing the gospel with others. God has done a noble thing for us. And that's what we're emphasizing. There's no bragging rights here. It would be absolutely unseemly to boast in sharing the gospel with others or to boast in their response to that gospel. It would be just as unseemly to boast in that as it is to boast in believing in Jesus for salvation when it's God's gracious gift to you. It's all by grace. And Paul knows that. I like the story that Scott Rowley tells. He, he met a guy who, he said, didn't really like this idea that Christians should share their faith. And Rowley said to him, you don't have to share your faith for God to love you. And the guy left. And a few weeks later, Rowley heard several people say about this guy, man, what got into him? He's really sharing the gospel everywhere with everyone. So Rolly caught up with the guy and he asked him, what's up? And the guy said, well, when I heard that God loves me, even if I don't share my faith, I just had to tell people about it. So he knew God's grace. Grace had made him a minister of the gospel. He didn't appoint himself. No minister should appoint himself. There are far too many who are self-appointed. But God had appointed him to be a minister of the gospel here. And that, that word minister is from the word diakonos, from which we get the word servant, which, which really means a person who, who sets the table or who's hosted a table, who serves and waits on tables. It, it's the idea that the gospel is a feast, that in the gospel there is rich food and the best wine for your soul. And what the job of a minister is, is to show you the menu. And to say, what does your soul need to be satisfied? What do you hunger and thirst for spiritually? It's all there in the gospel. What may I give to you? It's a ministry of service. And Paul says, I know what I am. I know what I am. And more than that, in the third way, he says this. I also know, I also know that God's grace taught me to think of myself as the worst Christian there is. That's what I know about myself. To me, though I am, he says, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me. And and Paul, the translators take it different ways because it's, Paul's playing with words here. He's, He's actually doing something that linguistically he shouldn't do. It's an impossibility. He takes a superlative, the word least, meaning there's nothing less than that. It's on the far end of the spectrum of words. There's there's nothing past it. Least. And then he says, by comparison to that, I am less. He's, he's, He's having fun, I think, but for a very serious purpose, much like I have fun often at night with my six year old Benjamin when I when I tell him, Ben, I love you. And he says, I love you too. And I say to him, I love you more. And he says to me, I love you most. And I say, I love you more than that. He says, I always love you one more. And I say, I love you most plus a million. And he says, I love you most plus infinity. You understand? We're just playing with 
playing with superlatives, with comparisons, which doesn't make any sense grammatically. But Paul, that's what Paul's saying here. I'm, I'm not a very good saint, Paul's saying. And then you would respond, yeah, I'm worse than you. And he would say, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm less than that. And you would say, no, 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 I'm the least. And he would say, I'm the least. Right? In other words, Paul, and this is the Apostle Paul, wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Paul understood himself as a Christian that he hadn't made the kind of progress as a Christian that you might expect a Christian to make if you didn't understand Christianity. He wasn't content with what he had done for Jesus. He didn't believe that he loved God as he ought to love God or love his neighbor as he ought to love his neighbor. He He knows he doesn't know the Bible and he doesn't pray and he doesn't trust God and he doesn't witness as confidently and as kindly as he ought to do. He knows all these things. The good that he wants to do, he does not do. And the evil he does not want to do, that very thing he does. Romans 7. He knows that about himself. And this is an essential attitude. For us, in evangelism, a deep consciousness of our own unworthiness and the vastness of God's mercy to us. That will help you in so many ways, friends. One of the ways it will help you is this. When you have come to faith in Christ, the longer you know the people who shared Christ with you, the longer you'll see them and their sin. And perhaps you'll be tempted to question the truthfulness of the message they passed on to you. And Paul says, listen, don't abandon or boast in those who shared it with you. Don't abandon them when they disappoint. They're sinners. Don't boast in them. They're sinners. We boast in Christ. So a good evangelist, friend, is is this. It is one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where you found bread. That's all it is. That's the perspective we need to have. Notice, friends, how all of that overcomes our fears that make us, make us reluctant to share the good news. Because some of us will say, I, I can't do this. I've got to be a better Christian before I talk about the grace of Jesus with others. I can't be the one to say it. Somebody else has to say, say it. Listen, don't talk about the grace of Jesus as if it is something you have conquered and mastered and lived perfectly in light of. And thereby give the subtle impression to others that you really understand the grace of Jesus and live in it well. What you are calling people to, friends, is to understand the grace of Jesus in the midst of weakness. In the midst of continuing failure. In the midst of continuing neediness. You don't have your act together. The Apostle Paul didn't have his act together. Stop saying you'll tell somebody. When you have it all together. Jesus is a better savior. Than you are a Christian. And he will always be that. That's the perspective we need to have. And the second thing you see is this. The content of the evangelism. What's his message? Verses 8 and 9. What's his message? 
Well, it's vertical and it's horizontal. On the one hand, it's vertical. It's about Christ. Verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. But it's also vertical. It's also this, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Those two things. That's his twofold message. That needs to be our message. So what do you share? We share about the riches of Christ. You don't need some packaged formula when you share. You just need to talk about Jesus and why he's good. The gospel means good news. It's, it's news of an event, an accomplishment, even a victory, something that's happened. That brings joy to those who understand it and receive its benefits. It's not a message about morality. The gospel isn't shape up or God's going to get you. There's no good news in that. The message is this. Christ has come. Christ has obeyed for you. Christ has lived for you. Christ has suffered for you. Christ has died for you. Christ has been raised from the dead for you on your behalf. So tell people about how you have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You're rich. What does that mean? Well, it means all kinds of things from chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians we've been talking about. What's special to you? Is it today that you're forgiven and God isn't holding your sin against you? That's one of your spiritual blessings. Is it that you've been adopted into his family? And though your mom and your dad have rejected you, you have a new father and a better family, an eternal and everlasting one that welcomes you. He's made you his child. Is it... Is it that he's loved you and lavished you with his grace? Is it that he's given you the hope of eternal life so that you sit in anticipation of living forever with him? Is it this, that the kingdom of God has become more important to you than the politics of the moment? Or at Christmas, is it this, how the coming of Christ matters more than the accumulation of the world's goods Because in him you know you have your inheritance. You are co-heirs with him. Of all things, all the best toys belong to you already in Christ for you to enjoy for eternity with Christ. Because you're you're a co-heir of the universe with Christ. Or is it this, that in the midst of a world that's falling apart, and perhaps your body that's falling apart, you have the hope of the resurrection? Well, there are so many things we could say about the riches of Christ. One man said, what we preach is the unsearchable, the inexorable, the untraceable, the unfathomable, the inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable, infinite riches of Christ. That's what we do. You've got... You've got to understand that that's your message, friends, because nobody can do anything for God until they have had God do for them. Nobody will ever live for God, no matter how much you call them to, beg them to, plead with them to, until they understand that God lived for them, that Jesus died and rose for them, and they're rich in him. Patrick Henry Wrote, I have now disposed of all my property to my family. There's one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If they had that, 
and I had not given them a single shilling, they would have been rich. And if they had not that, and I had given them all the world, they would be poor indeed. The hardest thing to do in ministry, friends, is to convince Christians who think they're poor that they're actually rich. Christians who think they have nothing, they barely have anything. Christians who think the gospel hasn't really done that much for them and the Father is kind of miserly with his gifts to them and they're looking around at everybody else and they're saying, you know, I just didn't get much here. Convincing them that they have in Jesus every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And likewise, the difficult thing in Christianity and ministry is this, to convince people who think that they are rich apart from Christ that they are really poor. That non-Christians who think they have everything they need and then some, that in fact, apart from Christ, they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. As Jesus says even to the church at Laodicea, in Revelation 3. That's, that's part of the work. That's part of the message, friends. But it's not the whole message. You're, you're, you have unsearchable riches in Christ. That's part of it. That's the vertical. But there's the horizontal. There's a second part to it. Chapter 3, verse 9. And he says, to bring to light for everyone this. What is the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? He's already told us what that mystery is. That mystery is, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and inheritors of the same promises in Christ Jesus. That, that God is bringing together in one new humanity, Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, and people, in one new thing called the church. And it was Paul's ministry, not just to preach Christ, but to tell people about the body that God was building. What an honored place in the universe for the church. So that's the message. And what's the expectation? What do you, what, what do you hope will happen? What are you looking for God to bring about? Two things again. A vertical and a horizontal. First, the horizontal. You see, again, go back to verse 10. What is it he wants? So that, verse 10, so that. In other words, he preaches and he tells so that through the church, there's your horizontal, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. There's your vertical. Two things, friends, so that through the church, in other words, he expects to not only preach about Christ in the church, but for God to actually build a church, which will then do something. And we'll talk about that in a second. But his message was never, believe and be saved and go on your merry way. His message was believe and be saved and embrace the community Jesus is creating. That's what baptism means in part, that you are publicly entering into the community that Christ is creating. Not because that community saves you or baptism saves you, but because that community is the community of the saved. And to reject that community is to reject the bride of Christ. It would be to tap Jesus on the shoulder and say, sir, I really like you. But I can't stand that woman you're engaged to. And Jesus looking you in the eyes and saying, 
I don't think you know anything about who I am. Because she is more precious to me than anything else. You must not know me. Listen, if the church, John Stott says, if the church is central to God's purpose as seen in both history and in the gospel, the church is at the center point of history, it's at the center of the gospel, it must surely be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? So what's God doing? Well, he's building his church. And we anticipate that he'll do that. And what's he going to do with that church? The vertical. He's going to, through it, display his wisdom. Where and to whom? To the angels, is Paul's language. You know that the angels and devils are are not all-knowing. They actually learn by watching and listening. They're watching and growing in the knowledge of the wisdom of God, Paul says. You know, the angels are watching us all the time. In 1 Peter 1, they, Paul, Peter says they, 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 they look into salvation. They long to understand redemption. They long to understand it. And then in Luke 15, it says when one person is saved, the angels, what? They rejoice. They're, they're checking it out. They're watching. And what the angels learn about God from creation is that he's powerful. And what they learn about God at Mount Sinai is his wrath. And what they learn about God's love, they learn at Calvary. But what they learn from the church is the wisdom of God that could, t- that could take male and female, Jew and Gentile, bond slave and free, rich and poor from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language and bring them together into one family, one new humanity, one new community of love where they love one another, are one with one another, where they're one with the Father, one with the Son, one with the Holy Spirit, and one with each other. They learn the wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God in that. As one pastor put it, in the classroom of God's universe, he is the teacher, the angels are the students, the church is the illustration and the subject is the manifold wisdom of God. That was too tough, however, for the Jews in Jesus' day, many of them, to swallow. Those people are going to be allowed in our community? The Gentiles? Really? Yes, says Paul. The whole point is the inclusion of the outsider. The point of the church is to bring you into a relationship with people you would otherwise have nothing in common with at all. And a church that is dominated by people who look exactly like you, who come from the same socioeconomic class as you, who only listen to the same music as you, who only have the same likes as you, who are only the same age as you. A church like that would be something less in its essence than what Jesus intends to create. In his church, this religion, Christianity, is about bringing you into a group of people with whom you have nothing else in common except Jesus. It's a religion about the outsider and bringing them in to display the wisdom of God to the angels. That's what you anticipate God will do. 
as he builds his church and puts it on display. But the last thing is this, the invitation of evangelism in verses 12 through 13. Paul, speaking of Jesus, finishes with this language, in whom, Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Verse 12. And then, and that's the vertical, and verse 13, so I ask you to not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. That's the horizontal. Okay, why do I say invitation and what do I mean? Well, I, I say this, the invitation is not an altar call. Nobody in this church at Redeemer believes that your pastor at this church does not believe. That you need to close your eyes, raise your hand, or come forward and kneel, walk down front, or do any of those things in response to Jesus. It's not the invitation of a one-time event, even praying one prayer and never looking back or praying again. That is not the invitation. The invitation, Paul says, is this. In Christ, you believe in him. You have access to the Father through the Son. And it is an invitation to begin using that access again and again and again. As you actually live like a Christian. Without Christ, you don't have that access. With Christ, you do have that access. In other words, you don't have this access if you jump through the right hoops, if you shape up, if you get more pious. You don't have it if your emotions are all together, if your disposition is calm because the kids are napping. Or you're two hours into a quiet time and you finally feel like you can pray and talk to God. You don't have access by the mediation, friends, of your mood, your feelings, whatever music you're listening to, whatever spirituality you think you have, or even whatever success you have at obedience. But you have this mediation in Christ. He is the only way to God the Father. The only way to God the Father is through God the Son, by the help of God the Holy Spirit. And grace has captured your heart when you know that you have access to the Father with boldness and confidence, not timidly, not reluctantly, not just when you think you are doing well, but when you have just done poorly. Because your mediation is not your obedience. Your mediation is Christ. He sees you safely to the Father. This is, this is how you can go having just failed in miserable sin. You can go immediately from that and say, Father, help me, forgive me, change me. I did it again. Because you appear in his presence not on the merits of your own righteousness. You appear in his presence on the merits of the righteousness of Christ. Do you believe in Jesus, friends? Then you can talk to your Father without fear. But then there's this invitation. It's an invitation to purpose and meaning in life. No, that's not how Paul puts it in verse 13. But would you look at Paul's language here for a moment? Paul winds it all up and says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering 
for you, which is your glory. And, and do you see what Paul is saying? Paul, Paul is saying, if the, do you guys remember that I was the one who persecuted the church and imprisoned Christians? And now I am imprisoned on behalf of Christ and his people. And I am glad to be there for you. I am glad to suffer for you. It is your glory. I'm glad to suffer for you because it advances the gospel. I'm glad to suffer for you because this is where the king wants me. I'm glad to suffer for you because it shows how important you are to Jesus. It's your glory. And in a way, what he's saying is this. I've got something worth suffering for, worth dying for. And so I've got something worth living for. Something that in life really matters. Purpose and meaning even in suffering and imprisonment. Grace has captured your heart, friends, when you are willing to suffer loss for the sake of seeing others saved. The loss of time, the loss of treasure, the loss of reputation, the loss of convenience, The loss of liberty. And I don't know what kind of suffering you are enduring. That God has you in right now. But if you are a Christian. He has you exactly where he intends for you to be at just this moment. Not everlastingly. But at this moment. For his glory. For your eternal spiritual well-being. However you can't even see it. And for the good of his church. And you may not realize, friends, what illness or betrayal, what heartbreak or setback or disappointment you will face in the year that is to come. But I know this when you face those things, you will have in the opportunity as you face them, you will have the opportunity to be a blessing. To God and his church in those sufferings. That's what you're invited to through faith. A a life of access to the Father through the Son. And a life which matters. Even the worst things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you for the freedom to bow in your presence and to know that your throne is a throne of grace. And Father, there are hard things going on in people's lives in this room. And I pray that you would draw near and sustain them and help them and bring glory to yourself and even good to others through those things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Friends, let me invite you to stand and sing in response to the word.